Hello and welcome back to the Indian Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, you are seeking for inspiration, information, entertainment that you can apply to your everyday life. Today, we're going to talk about the wisdom of belief, the power of belief. Belief is an interesting word in English because it carries various connotations. And unless we can disambiguate the various connotations, we really don't know what we're referring to by the word belief. Very similar is the word love in English. So many, many, many connotations in this one catch-all four-letter word. Anyhow, love is a topic for another day. Today, we focus on the power of belief. One can think of belief as a particular belief, as in a specific belief in reincarnation, in deities, in etc., etc., etc. So belief can refer to the content that one ascribes to, and that could be on a supernatural scale, such as, do you believe in leprechauns? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe in deities? Etc., etc., etc. And that can also be on a very mundane scale. Do you believe in the power of working out? Do you believe in going for long walks? Do you believe in etc., etc., etc.? What I wish to turn to is not the notion of what one believes in, but the extent to which that one has belief, the extent to which one is able to exert and experience the power of belief. So we'll bracket off what one believes in. Okay, We'll think of belief as perhaps muscle mass. And perhaps there are various weights that we use. You know, the weights can be akin to the particular beliefs that we have. But irrespective of what we believe, by, by flexing the muscle of belief, we strengthen that power within oneself. And that power can yield extraordinary results. It's a bit cliche, but it's also very apt that belief in oneself is necessary, particularly in pursuing one's goals, particularly in pursuing goals that perhaps are not low-hanging fruit that might be difficult, might take years, perhaps the completion of a degree, perhaps the building of a business, perhaps the transformation of a body, perhaps the putting to bed of a persistent habit. Yes, belief that it is possible is a fundamental component to the success of that enterprise. And so practicing belief, practicing affirmation, practicing seeing what is possible is a skill like any other skill. For you see, all too often, the mind is equipped and compelled to see what is impossible, to see what is difficult, to fault find, to deconstruct, to peck away at possibility. And it takes practice and diligence to see what is going well, to see what is possible, to focus on the positive. One is neither more realistic nor less realistic than the other. It is literally a question of what one wishes to focus upon. It's not a question of being blind to what one is not focusing upon, but it is a question of registering what is going well, what is possible, 
and keeping in mind one's goal, however improbable. Yes, defying probability. The strength of the belief can pull you through the trials and travails of life and certainly can fuel your tank, as it were, to uh, accomplish your aims, to arrive at your destination, whatever that looks like. So meditate on this idea that there is the order of analysis of what we believe in, be that mundane, be that spiritual. And there is the order of analysis of that we believe, that we possess the power of belief and we can apply that muscle mass to various exercises, to various weights, right? Throughout our workout, if you will. I want to tell the tale today, for it seems that the telling of tales is a cornerstone, a hallmark of this podcast. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, but I want to tell the tale today of a well-beloved figure in Sanskrit lore, uh, a deity, if you will, Hanuman. This simian monkey man that is a quite beloved, powerful, fascinating figure. Think ancient Indian planet of the apes, <laughs> but sort of spiritual planet of the apes. Think, uh, think of a member of that simian race who is particularly attained in his spirituality and his forbearance who possesses extraordinary physical and martial prowess, capable of phenomenal feats, of flight, of fetching very large objects to and fro, etc., etc., but also of profound composure, of mastery of self, of the sublimation of libidinal impulses. And Hanuman, of course, typically appears as part of the caste of the great epic surrounding the hero prince Rama, very, very famous uh, figure in uh, Sanskrit lore. Rama is, of course, um, the major protagonist of one of the two great Sanskrit epics, the Ramayana, the other epic being the Mahabharata, which is, um, which is a very long story, a very, very, very long story <laughs> for another day. The Ramayana is a much more contained and straightforward epic. Uh, much as its name, it has to do with uh, the goings of Rama, the career of Rama, the exploits of Rama, this hero prince who is exiled upon um, the day of his would-be coronation due to some palace intrigue and is made to leave the world of the city, the world of the quote-unquote civilized, and enter the realm of the forest, the realm of the uncivilized, the beasts, and also the sages and to live there for 14 long years, accompanied by his wife, Sita, who insisted that she wanted to be nowhere else but by his side for the time of his exile, and his sort of slightly more hot-headed sidekick brother, Lakshmana. <laughs> um, so this, this trio, um, at some point, they come across the, the, the simians, the great, um, the, the Vandras, the great sort of monkey people living in the forest in highly sophisticated uh, settings, and um, foremost of whom is Hanuman. Okay, maybe I'll read a little bit from the stories behind the poses, and I'll, of course, um, add value by maybe adding a nugget uh, <laughs> or two here or there. Okay, there was once a great prince named Rama who was an incarnation of Lord Vishnu. At one time, Rama was made to undertake exile 
in the forest for 14 long years. Accompanying him in the forest was his wife Sita and his faithful and his faithful brother Lakshmana. They all renounced royal life so as to live in the forest as hermits during their exile. Okay, so while there, Rama discovers a sophisticated race of simian beings. They live in great cities, etc. Right? Greatest among them, foremost among them was Hanuman, unmatched in his strength, his speed, his loyalty. He was no ordinary monkey man. Hanuman was the son of the wind god Vayu. Vayuputra is one of his names, son of Vayu. Hence his great speed and strength. You know, Hanuman's parentage is, is it's absolutely fascinating. He is the son of Vayu in a sense. He actually has, in a sense, three fathers. He has one mother. Uh, so his favorite sort of matronymic uh, name is uh, Anjaneya, uh, uh, son of Anjana. There's a beautiful, brilliant story about his relationship with his mother that we'll come to another day. But Anjana was a, sort of a childless uh, Vandara, a monkey person, and she prayed to the great god Shiva in order to conceive. And Hanuman actually is resulting from Shiva's seed carried by Vayu the wind to impregnate Anjana. And of course, he was raised by his, his monkey man father as well. Um, so he's got three fathers in a sense, one mother. But the symbology of Hanuman is very much akin to both Shiva and Vayu. Shiva, the great ascetic, the great yogi, who is able to subdue his senses and garner great power. And of course, the wind god itself, uh, as anyone who's witnessed a, a tsunami or a hurricane or a tornado, what can be more powerful than wind? Yes. Okay. So he was the first of the Vanaras that met Rama while roaming the forest. And there was sort of an instant kind of click, a connection, a spark between them. I'm sure you've all experienced this in various ways in various relationships at some point in your life. This was a powerful soul connection, so much so that the instant they met, Hanuman knew. He knew in his heart. There are things you know in your intellect, and the things you know in your bones or in your heart, instinctively. He knew in his heart that he was meant to serve and protect Rama for the rest of his days. This was his calling. He knew his soul's calling. Hanuman pledges allegiance and loyalty to Rama, who gladly accepted, since the love between them was, of course, mutual. Now, the story of the Ramayana uh, focuses around uh, Rama's exile in the forest and the subsequent abduction of his, his wife, Sita, by the, the demon king, Ravana. Okay? Ravana abducts Sita, and Rama pretty much loses it. He loses his, his mind in grief and, and bereavement, and eventually he's consoled. And um, he receives help from, from the Vanras, from the monkey people, to, to find her. So the first order of business is what? Right? To look for her, to, to, to establish a search party. Okay? So there were four search parties for all of the four cardinal directions. Okay? From where they are. Now, there was a party who went north. But they came back empty-handed. It's a party who went east, and they too came back empty-handed. And a party who went west, and they too came back empty-handed. 
So all that was left was the south. And all this takes place more or less in, in, in north, northern India, Bharata, South Asia. Okay. So the, the, um, the land to the south, the area to the south was vast. Anuman figured, you know, I can go faster than anyone else. And, you know, these folks will just slow me down. So I'll take on the south all to myself. It'll be much more efficient. So Hanuman scours the south in search of Sita. And eventually he arrives at the most, the southernmost tip of South Asia. And he's quite dismayed. He gazes with dismay at the seemingly unending sea before him. And he figures, well, she's not in the north, she's not in the east, she's not in the west, she's not in the south of the mainland, but I've heard stories of this great citadel, of this great civilization across the sea of Lanka, the great island kingdom of Lanka. So he deduced that she must be there. But he had no means of crossing the sea, no canoes, if only he had a boat of sorts. He doubted he would ever be able to cross the ocean and complete his task. But he made a promise, he made a vow, he pledged allegiance to his beloved Rama, no less. So he must find a way. Isn't it the case that we, we much more often than not find a way when someone else depends on us? Our parents, our siblings, our children, our students, a colleague, etc., etc., our pets. That when someone else depends upon us, we find a way because it's so important not to let that person down, particularly when that's a person in need. Yes. So he thinks, you know, what do I do? What do I do? So he collects himself. He sits on the banks of the sea and he sort of gazes inward for inspiration. Sometimes when we are, we're fettered, you know, we're plagued by the difficulties of life or besieged in a way. Sometimes we're caught in patterns of thinking and doubt, perpetuating the same mental pathways, the mind stuff. And, and it's, it's difficult to find a solution when going around in circles. But sometimes when we're able to short circuit that, interrupt the pattern, you know, uh, having an inspirational moment somehow, maybe through meditation, maybe through an encounter, maybe distracting the mind with uh, something else, particularly something enjoyable or nourishing. One is struck with inspiration. So Hanuman was, was no stranger to spirituality. He was very connected to spirit. And so, you know, he, he knelt on the banks of the sea and prayed to the divine, asking for inspiration of how to, deal with this impossible task ahead, right? He wasn't only physically strong, he also possessed great strength of character. What does that look like? Well, faith, for example, belief, devotion, steadfastness, dependability. These are true tests of character. He prayed specifically to his father, the wind god Vayu, and asked for help. Gently cupping his hands that he might receive whatever grace may descend from the heavens his way. Then, all of a sudden, he knew what he must do. He gathered his strength and summoned every iota of faith, of belief he could muster. Belief that I can do this. This can be done by me. 
chanting the name of Rama, 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 all the while. And he backed up, and he took a running leap toward the horizon. He kicked off with his back foot as his front foot pierced the air in front of him. In a split posture, defying gravity, he hurled himself through the air, propelled by the power of belief, fueled by grace itself. Some of you may recognize this posture. <laughs> For those of you who are interested in the connection between the tail and the poses, the yoga poses, this is actually Hanumanasana, sometimes called a monkey pose in English. And it is, of course, the great splits pose. This is the point of Hanuman's story that pertains to the pose. Right? There's great relevance to the poses to be found in these stories, great teachings. So the great leaping monkey succeeded in crossing the sea, flying above the waves and landing on the soil of Lanka. He did it. He knew now that he would find Sita shortly. But before he, he marched on to find Sita, he took a moment. He realized that, you know, he received a blessing. And so he took a moment to offer thanks to the divine for helping him realize the true extent of his abilities. You know, it's interesting in life, what do we say? All of those difficult tasks I mentioned earlier that require great effort and persistent um, you know, persistence, resilience, as I mentioned, whether a degree, whether a business, whether um, uh, transforming one's health, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, one can view it as, as a result of a function of effort. And certainly effort is required, but effort is half the equation. Grace, if you will, circumstance is also extremely important. Circumstances need to support one's effort. One is incomplete without the other, isn't it? You know, effort and circumstance are two wheels on the chariot of success. And one can't quite get there unless they're both working in tandem somehow. Okay. That doesn't mean that, oh, there's an obstacle. This isn't meant to be. More often than not, the obstacle actually points you to the right way. The obstacle is a blessing if you can view it correctly or most fruitfully can say. So he took a moment to thank the divine for facilitating him realizing his own true potential. He found within himself something that was not there before. It is only difficulty. It is only striving. It is only discomfort that will occasion you to look within yourself, dig deep within yourself, and find within yourself what you did not know was there. How could you possibly have known it was there, given that you've never looked for it? How could you possibly have ever looked for it, given that you've never needed to? Necessity is the mother of invention, you see. Now, whereby are objects polished through great friction? Depending on what you're made of, <laughs> uh, you'll either be greatly bruised and scratched or perhaps polished. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Um, but Anuman was made of the right stuff to rise to the occasion, and so he did. And, you know, he finally finds Sita, brings news to her that Rama has not abandoned hope. Rama's still looking for her, and now that they know where she is, he will certainly 
wage a war, do what he needs to do to rescue her. And of course, that is the remainder of the Ramayana, the tale of Rama's rescuing of Sita and subsequent events, which is the tale for another day. But let me for a moment touch on the gloss in all of the, the excerpts in, from the stories behind the poses. Uh, and this one, of course, is, uh, is this one refers to monkey pose or Hanumanasana. Um, there's a, a spiritual gloss. I mean, typically in this podcast, as I'm reading through the story, I'm doing more than reading. I'm enacting it in a sense and also, also seasoning it <laughs> with hopeful wisdom, wisdom bombs here and there. Uh, but there's an overt gloss after each tale, which brings to light in the conscious mind some of the emotional and spiritual truths in the tale. And this is important to understand. I think a lot of folks really are hung up on the historical, physical veracity of mythological tales or spiritual tales or religious tales, however you want to think of them. Whenever I teach in, in comparative religion context, typically in a credit setting or even in non-credit uh, sort of continuing studies, adult education, in order for us to teach the great traditions of the world in a way where everyone's included, we have to take a stance that's not sitting from within one of them as the gospel truth unintended. And so many times I, I, I talk about, for example, the narratives of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, Jesus Christ, if you will. And really, one dimension is whether or not he walked the earth and whether or not he performed certain miracles. Another dimension is not what is literally true about his story, what is spiritually true about his story. And this applies whether we're looking for narratives from the Gospels, narratives from the, the, the epics and the Puranas, narratives from sci-fi fantasy, spiritual truths from Star Wars, from Lord of the Rings, you name it. The question is, what is spiritually true about the story? Okay, Here's a bit of the gloss. We are more than we think we are. And with effort and faith, we can realize its potential. Hanuman is a powerful symbol of this realization. Like all of us, he is a primate through and through. I was actually on a client call just an hour or two ago, and we were talking about this because of some of his family members are still, and I mentioned to him, this is not just his family, many individuals on the globe <laughs> are much more primate than spiritual. They're flinging their stuff, so to speak, you know, thumping their chests. And unfortunately, these tend to be the ones who clamber to the top of the social hierarchy. And unless they've got some emotional or spiritual wisdom, they make life difficult for, and they're typically men and they make it difficult for most men and certainly most women. Um, but, you know, we are more than primates, right? We are more than this. To my mind, the human experience is sort of the overlap between uh, our evolutionary aspect, you know, the extent to which we are primates and our spiritual aspect, the extent to which we can connect with ideals and ideas, divine, what's, what's more than matter. Somehow we're able to cohabit both these realms and navigate them, ideally artfully. And wisdom, in a sense, to my mind, is actually navigating the physical, but cognizant of what's beyond it in some sense. So while Hanuman is a primate through and through, you know, his faith and devotion 
through his faith, through his belief, through the power of his belief and his devotion, he's able to sublimate his animal impulse to attain divine status. He's peaceful. He only exerts force. When? To provoke? Nope. To protect. Yes, this is the dharma of exerting violent force. We're needed for protection. He's also a lifelong celibate. Now, massive footnote needed here. These aren't traditions which demonize desire. There's no need to demonize desire. Desire actually should be celebrated as the work of, of the goddess of Shakti, uh, of what propels all creation, of why we're all here. One can exalt the power of brahmacharya or chastity or celibacy without demonizing desire. It's important to not demonize desire because our particular culture in the modern West has certain strands of its heritage which have done so. And this can be problematic. Okay? But Hanuman is a lifelong celibate. Part of this symbology is, you know, he's he's able to transcend his animal nature through spiritual practice. He's able to sublimate his libidinal forces. He's able to, to, to attain considerable spiritual power. And this affords him tremendous wisdom and tremendous strength. If you look to Hanuman's iconography anywhere, <laughs> have a look at his tail. His tail is never sort of lazing around on the floor or wrapped around a leg or reaching for a banana, perhaps maybe in a comic but when you're looking at iconography that's intended to be worshipped as a murti, an embodiment of the divine, his tail is always raised. Why is that? What could that symbolize? Well, some may see this as um, some may see this as innate to the symbology. Some may see this as a projection. I leave that to you. But what I would say is a tail, like a spine, stems from the root. The root chakra in tantric thought, the mula dara. Okay, so his raised tail could very well be a symbol of his raised kundalini power. You know, that the in tantric thought, raised kundalini confers upon the practitioner colossal abilities, feats of strength and knowledge. And perhaps this is what Hanuman is representing. And perhaps he represents a call, an invitation. Perhaps his iconography and his acts are saying to us, conveying to us that we too can sublimate our base impulses and raise our awareness from the beastly to the divine, from the terrestrial to the celestial. We don't want to be lost in the clouds. We don't want to be stuck on earth. We need to be at the horizon where heaven meets the earth where our primate natures meets our spiritual potential. And when we're walking upright and seeing straight, our gaze alights upon the horizon. Perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps we too can transmute our animal instinct into great love, devotion, and spiritual power. Now, for those who are interested in the actual pose, the last sentence reads, when you engage this posture, remember the steadfast devotion of Hanuman. And that's a belief, this power of belief, which garnered the grace to render the impossible possible. Now, there are certain limitations 
to physical reality that will remain limitations by virtue of the laws of physics. This is not quite what is being referred to here, although there are tales of the miraculous throughout the globe. But there are, there are attainments that are technically possible, but difficult or improbable. There's something that you long after, that you've desired for some time. Perhaps you haven't put the requisite effort into it. And perhaps that is because, consciously or unconsciously, you don't believe you can attain it. You don't believe you can have it. Perhaps you don't even believe you can deserve it. But belief is where all things begin. What we believe to be possible, I mean within the realm of the physically possible, will certainly inform what we aim to manifest, as well as inform or ameliorate our ability to manifest. And so hopefully you've enjoyed this transmission on the wisdom and the power of belief. And hopefully you can have a look at an area of life, a goal, something that you, you would really like to shift or change. It's been difficult. And perhaps you can shift your belief system surrounding the area of life. And harness, leverage the power of belief to get where it is you'd like to be in this life. Thank you for listening. By all means, if you're interested, consider studying with me at uh, IndianWisdomSchool.com. I'm not hard to reach. Reach out if I can be of service. Thanks again. Namaste.